Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia and streamed live via the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, where recent podcasts are also available. All podcasts are available via iTunes. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie and today I'm going to share with you a presentation from last weekend's Animal Law Conference in Sydney. The presentation is about the Australian dairy industry and it was given by Emmanuel Dufre of Voiceless. I've also got a few community announcements that I'll um, provide at the end. But let's start with some news. I'm going to read some excerpts from an article that appeared recently in the Weekly Times. Kangaroos would be hunted and killed by recreational shooters under a plan by a Victorian MP. Shooters and Fishers MP Daniel Young suggested Victoria introduce an open season when kangaroos could be hunted like other game species to control kangaroo numbers. In Parliament last week, Mr Young asked, why is there not an open season for kangaroos with the same regulations and rules any other game species has in which we would be allowed to hunt kangaroos for a certain period of the year? An open season on kangaroos was only one option canvassed by Mr Young. He also recommended extending a pet food trial across Victoria in which kangaroos killed in certain parts of the state could be sold to knackeries for pet food. Under the current scheme, when a kangaroo is culled, it must be left on the ground. We think this is a dreadful waste, Mr Young said. A spokeswoman for Environment Minister Lisa Neville said the government hadn't received any evidence to show an increase in the kangaroo numbers, but is always happy to work with community and stakeholders when presented with anecdotal anecdotal evidence. Greens leader Greg Barber said an open season would turn neighbours against each other. The RSPCA said if effective management plans were put in place, there should not be a need for culling. That story is dated the 27th of August. In other news, the New South Wales government last week released its report on puppy farming and I'm going to read a statement from Oscars Law that responds to this. The New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry has handed down its report into puppy factories and it is disappointing to say the least. Firstly, the inquiry doesn't believe that the number of dogs on puppy puppy factories should be limited, meaning that operators will be able to continue to keep and breed hundreds of dogs at a time with absolutely no limits. One of the justifications used by the inquiry to not recommend a limit was that pounds and shelters hold a large number of animals at any one time and that there is no evidence of adverse animal welfare outcomes in these facilities. This completely misses the point that shelters have a staff-to-dog ratio in their code and must employ adequate staff. Puppy factories in New South Wales do not have to employ staff. 
The logic behind this argument suggests that pounds with 300 animals could operate with no staff, which we know is just ridiculous. The recommendations acknowledge the welfare issues of pets being sold in pet shops, but at the same time recommends that they should remain there. In doing so, this review completely ignores the fact that every animal welfare organisation that made a submission recommended a ban on the sale of animals in pet shops. This would indicate the inquiry valued the interests of puppy farmers over the growing community concerns about how vulnerable dogs are treated by this industry. Furthermore, the inquiry gave merit to the Puppy Factory Lobby Group's recommendation of a star rating system for puppy factories. This is just more self-regulation and marketing gimmicks and will do nothing to help these dogs. One positive recommendation is the implementation of a breeder ID system. However, this was recommended by the government back in 2012 by the Companion Animal Task Force and is yet to be implemented. If this simple inter intervention is not implemented, then it shows the Baird government is not serious about tackling animal cruelty in New South Wales. There were no recommendations for an increase in funding and resources, but rather a recommendation for a further review. In summary, the inquiry has heard the cries of outrage from the community over the inhumane practices of puppy factories, and rather than addressing the issue and shutting these premises down, the inquiry seeks to legitimise the perpetrators based on a rating system and licensing. The inhumane act of animal cruelty needs to be shut down, not rated like it's a reality television show. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, and that last track was My Own Way by Keto Alexander. Hey, are you curious? Do you want to see how a busy radio station works? Do you want to know how over 300 broadcasters come together to produce radio 24-7? Are you interested in seeing the inside of a radio studio? Or do you want to find out more about 3CR's unique radio philosophy? Let me take you on a station tour. For $90, 3CR offers one-hour radio station tour for groups at a time that suits you. Radio, live transmission. Radio, live transmission. So if you are part of a community organization, student group, or institution, give 3CR a call on 94198377. For more information about radio station tours at 3CR, go to 3cr.org.au and click on Station Tours. So the presentation I'm about to play for you is from the recent Animal Law Conference that was hosted by the New South Wales Young Lawyers. Emmanuel Dufray considers welfare concerns categorised as either unnecessary or inherent that relate to the Australian dairy industry, as well as the legal framework and some recommendations. He draws on the new voiceless report, The Life of the Dairy Cow, which I'll link to when this podcast is uploaded. I'll let the speaker be introduced by the New South Wales Young Lawyers Chair and Event MC, Amanda Richman. Let me first just add that this was a presentation given by Mr Dufray at the New South Wales Young Lawyers Animal Law Conference, but that the views expressed are those of the speaker personally and not of the New South Wales Young Lawyers. Our next speaker is Emmanuel Dufray, Legal Counsel of the Animal Protection Institute, Voiceless. He holds a bachelor degree in law and arts 
with a sorry with a major in politics and international relations. Sorry about that. Emmanuel is an expert in animal law and policy, and as Voiceless's legal counsel, he advises government on the development and implementation of animal welfare policy and standards. Emmanuel's principal focus is on the legal framework surrounding factory farming and the commercial kangaroo industry. Emmanuel was one of the principal authors of Voiceless's latest animal welfare report, which um, Michael Kirby mentioned, The Life of the Dairy Cow, a report on the Australian dairy industry, which of course gives him excellent credentials to talk to us about the legal framework governing the Australian dairy industry. Now, I have had the privilege of hearing Manny talk about the dairy industry before, and it certainly is one of those topics which can challenge your dopamine pathways. But according to a recent update from Animals Australia, scientists have confirmed that watching cat videos lowers your stress and raises your energy levels. So I promise that if you all get through this, at the end you will be rewarded with the best the internet has to offer of cute but cat videos. So please welcome to the floor, Emmanuel Giffray. You will get through it, I promise. So um, in January this year, oh, and by the way, thank you, Amanda, Rebecca, Daniel, and the team at New South Wales Young Lawyers Society. This is a fantastic event. I'm thoroughly enjoying it, learning so much. And I'm sure all of you are also um, very thankful. So well done. So in January, January this year, Voiceless released its latest report on the commercial dairy industry, the life of the dairy cow. Um, it was written by myself, our head of legal, our head of communications, um, and also our um, a director, Deidre Wicks. We also um, the report was also peer reviewed by here it is peer reviewed by Voices of Scientific Expert Advisory Council, which comprises renowned cattle experts, professors Mark Beckoff, um, Clive Phillips, Leslie Rogers, Bernie Rowland, and John Webster. I'll put this here because. Um, so, we chose to look at the dairy, um, the dairy industry for a few reasons. Firstly, prior to our report, a comprehensive review into the welfare concerns in the dairy industry hadn't really been undertaken in an Australian context. Indeed, um, you know, daring, um, and therefore the report was therefore intended to detail these welfare concerns and supported by uh, peer-reviewed scientific evidence. Secondly, from an advocacy perspective, we felt that the Australian dairy industry had avoided some of the criticisms that were levelled against some of the other industries. Therefore, the report was aimed at mobilising the animal protection community to target these welfare concerns through their campaign efforts. Thirdly, we were concerned about the general lack of public awareness around these issues. Remarkably, when speaking to the people, uh, speaking to individuals uh, prior to writing our report, many people thought that dairy cows just automatically produced milk. Um, which, is an interesting, which is interesting and a little bit sad. And they also believed that um, dairying was an essentially a cruelty-free industry. So it was a free pass. That thought process was generally prominent amongst vegetarians as well. So the report sought to correct some of these assumptions as well as form the backbone of a much broader consumer awareness campaign. And finally, the report makes a number of recommendations for consumers, for the dairy industry and also for policymakers. In this presentation, I'll be paying particular attention to our legal recommendations, um, as well as highlight our recommendation for a dairy industry assurance scheme. So what are the welfare concerns that we canvass in our report? Well, broadly, there are two categories. 
The first category concerns those aspects of the trade, whether husbandry practices or production systems, um, that are inessential or unnecessary for dairy production. And for these, there are commercially viable alternatives that exist that render these practices completely unjustifiable. Uh, regulatory reform could be implemented to resolve these welfare concerns or at least to reduce their impact on dairy cows. And so for the purpose of this presentation, I'll refer to them as unnecessary welfare concerns. The second category concerns those aspects of the trade that are inherent in commercial dairying. Um, and for which practical alternatives, while they certainly do exist, they are simply not commercially viable for farmers to be able to maintain a profitable business model. As a result, while, these, while regulations certainly could be implemented to resolve some of these welfare concerns, given there is no commercially viable alternative, it's highly unlikely that that legislation would be implemented. So I call, for the purposes of this presentation, I refer to them as inherent welfare concerns. Now, I'll briefly discuss some of the issues in each of these categories, the legal framework which presently applies, and if possible, some of our recommendations for legal reforms, which are all in our, um, all in our dairy report. But first, I think it'd be really helpful to highlight what the legislative framework is governing dairy cow welfare. Um, so animal welfare is principally regulated at a state and territory level through anti-cruelty statutes. In New South Wales, we've got the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, 1979. Um, or otherwise known as POCTA. So generally, POCTA um, uh, prohibits um, unnecessary, unreasonable cruelty. So it functions largely to prevent malicious acts of animal cruelty and to prohibit gross acts of neglect. As with animal, other animal use industries, the dairy industry also is regulated by industry codes of practice. So that kind of operates in tandem with POCTA. Um, and in New South Wales, the relevant code is the Model Code of Practice for the Welfare of Animals, uh, Cattle, otherwise known as the Cattle Code, or as I refer to it as Cattle Code. Now, it's important to note that the Cattle Code is not mandatory. It is, a, it is advisory in nature, and therefore it is entirely unenforceable. Compliance or non-compliance with the code in New South Wales can be adduced as evidence um, in a proceeding in relation to an offence under POCTA. However, due to the Cattle Code not having very meaningful protections for dairy cows, the Cattle Code largely operates as a defence for a charge of cruelty, as opposed to creating any additional offences which could be used to protect animals. The industry codes are currently under a process of being updated into standards and guidelines, and the draft standards and guidelines for cattle um, is currently through the final stages of uh, ministerial assent, so it's gone through its public uh, consultation process. And in the standards and guidelines, there are a number of standards which offer some protections for animals and are intended to be mandatory and legally enforceable. They also contain a variety of guidelines which are advisory in nature, like our, it has the same function as the cattle code. Unfortunately, and quite disappointing, the New South Wales government recently entered into a memorandum of understanding with the New South Wales Farmers Association. And in that MOU, it detailed that Yes, the cattle code, sorry, the standards and guidelines for cattle will be implemented um, and adopted through POCTA, but only as non-mandatory guidelines. So even the standards which were intended to be compulsory and enforceable under POCTA will merely be guidelines of no real legal force. Nevertheless, um, so with that legal framework in mind, I wanted to get on with the presentation, have a look at some of those unnecessary welfare concerns that I mentioned earlier. 
Now, dehorning and disbudding is a standard on farm mutilation practice used to remove or stop the growth of horns in either calves or cattle. According to a 2012 Dairy Australia survey, 87% of Australian calves, calves are born on farms where horns are removed before six months of age. That is an industry statistic. Um, under POCTA, dehorning and disbudding is permitted to be performed. However, it is unlawful to dehorn cattle over the age of 12 months in a manner that inflicts unnecessary pain on the cattle. And of course, unnecessary pain is conveniently not defined under POCTA. Um, under the Cattle Code, dehorning and disbudding without pain relief is permitted, although it is recommended that performing the procedure without local anaesthetic should be limited to cows under six months of age. The Cattle Code further recommends that, uh, that cattle over 12 months of age should not be dehorned. And under the draft standards and guidelines, dehorning and disbudding is permitted without pain relief if the cow is less than six months old or less than 12 months old if the cow is at first yarding. Now, each of these positions are problematic for a number of reasons, but I'll just highlight three. Firstly, the science shows, and the unanimous, you know, science, there's overwhelming scientific affirmation on this, that all methods of dehorning and disbudding cause chronic and acute pain for both calves and cows. Whilst disbudded calves may experience less pain than, de than dehorned adult cows, the pain experienced by calves is still not insignificant. Um, in this way, age is an imp imperfect, if not an, in an irrelevant, consideration when determining whether to dehorn um, or disbud a, a cow or a calf. Secondly, according to the scientific literature, appropriate pain relief would not simply involve the use or administration of a local anaesthetic, but would also require the use of a sedative prior and a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory after the procedure. And I don't like using the word procedure, but I still haven't come up with a term to define exactly what you would call this mutilation. Um, so, however, neither the Cattle Code, the Standards and Guidelines, or POPTA require that three-pronged approach to pain relief. Without it, you still get severe chronic and acute pain. And critically, technology now exists that enable the breeding of whole dairy cows, that is, cows that are naturally born without horns. Um, without any implication on their productivity or the cow's behaviour, rendering the actual process of dehorning and disbudding completely unnecessary. And st studies have shown that it's very easy to introduce the gene that allows for polled breeding within one or two generations. So polled size is a technology that exists, and yet there is some, for some reason a reluctance amongst the dairy industry to introduce it within, our her within herds. So accordingly, Voices' recommendations, our legal recommendations, is that all forms of dehorning and disbudding, because it's unnecessary, should be prohibited, unless performed by and on the advice of a veterinarian and only for therapeutic reasons. And where it is performed, then it has to involve that three-pronged approach to pain relief, i.e. a sedative, local anaesthetic, and a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. We also recommend that farmers must um, select for desirable genetic traits, i.e. polled breeding, when developing their herds. The next um, aspect or unnecessary welfare concern I wanted to talk about is calving induction. Now this is the use of hormone treatment to naturally induce an early birth in pregnant cows. Uh, it is estimated that around 20% of farms uh, use calving induction. And here's the rub, mainly as a herd management tool i.e. to allow for synchronisation amongst their calves. Um, this is particularly uh, you know, useful 
for farmers or convenient for farmers if they've got large herds so that they're all calving at once and it's much easier to manage the calving process. Um, there's also anecdotal evidence um, that farmers use calving induction because they can get a couple of months extra milk yield out of their cows because obviously um, after birth the cow will begin lactating and they'll get an extra couple of months. I've also heard shockingly that uh, dairy farmers will use calving induction so because it saves them from having to manually kill the calf because the calf will very often be born stillborn. So Pochter is silent on the issue of calving induction. The cattle code states that calving induction is only permitted if performed um, under veterinary supervision. And under the draft standards and guidelines, calving induction is only permitted under veterinary advice, so there's no mention on veterinary supervision. Now, again, the position under each of these, um, these legislative instruments is completely inadequate for a number of reasons, but I'll just mention a couple. Firstly, the use of calving induction as a herd management tool uh, is not expressly mentioned in any of these provisions, and it's certainly not prohibited. Um, Induction can be extremely detrimental to both mother and calf. For the mother, it increases her risk of infectious disease, like retained fetal membrane. Um, it can uh, cause mastitis, which can, can be extremely damaging and painful, and, and if left untreated, can result in her, an early death. Um, but also, it, it could, because of the stress on her immune system, result in her dying herself. For a calf, um, they're also likely, again, to be born stillborn, and if they aren't born stillborn, it's too weak to survive. They are often killed within only moments of, of their life. And as Phil described, it is often by means of either blunt force trauma, i.e. a hit over the head with a hammer, or crushing of their rib cage. So there are significant welfare concerns with calving induction and allowing it to continue merely as a herd management tool or for the convenience of farms is certainly just not... Um, it's, uh, it's, it's not relevant, or in other words, it's just it's not appropriate. Um, secondly, whilst requiring veterinary oversight is promising, this is highly unlikely to involve veterinary supervision um, at the time of calving, and this is problematic because the real risks involved with calving induction occur at the time of calving, and neither the Proctor Cattle Code or um, the Standards and Guidelines require supervision at the time of calving. And finally, induction for herd managing, management purposes, as, we've, we've, as I've mentioned before, is entirely unnecessary. Only 20% of farmers use calving induction, which means the vast majority of farmers are able to manage their herds without the use of this technique. Indeed, New, South Wales, New Zealand farmers have introduced a voluntary phase-out of calving induction effective on the 1st of June this year. It was effective on the 1st of June this year. So there is simply no need to go through this process. This, this practice is no longer relevant, or it never was relevant, which obviously uh, leads us, lends us to um, the only logical legislative um, provision or legislative approach would be to make sure that it's prohibited, unless for therapeutic reasons, and unless, of course, there is uh, veterinary oversight at the time of carving. So I'm going to quickly run through the remaining unnecessary welfare concerns as I'm conscious of time. The first is tail docking. Now it's estimated that around 18% of dairy farmers continue to amputate the tails of their cows despite the, showing, the science showing that there, are, there is no notable benefit to either the cow or the farmhand. Now that's important. The science has shown that there is no benefit um, in terms of cow health or in terms of farmhand convenience in tail docking. 
Indeed, representative bodies of the dairy industry no longer support the practice, and yet a huge number of Australian dairy cows continue to, be, to have their cows amputated in this way without the use of pain relief. In New South Wales, it's legal for a layperson to tail dog, provided the calf is less than six months of age, and on the advice of a veterinarian, is necessary for therapeutic reasons. This is the same position proposed under the draft standards and guidelines. Neither of these require that the procedure be performed with the use of pain relief, which is shocking given that um, tail docking is known to cause both acute pain at the time of the amputation and also irritation later on, phantom pain-like symptoms. Now, given tail docking is known to cause, again, pain, distress, that chronic irritation, we recommend that tail docking be prohibited unless performed by and on the advice of a veterinarian for therapeutic reasons, and again, with the use of appropriate pain relief. Now, I'll be talking about the bobby calves issue a little bit later. One false trauma which I've mentioned before, this is perhaps one of the most horrific um, aspects of the treatment of bobby calves. Um, again, for those that don't know, it's a method of slaughtering unwanted bobby calves that are, that are useless in terms of dairy farming because they don't produce milk. Or they're unneeded, they're not needed for the production of milk. Now, blunt force trauma is a very common and cheap method of disposing of unwanted bobby calves. However, veterinary experts in Australia and abroad, in particular the Veterinary, Asso veterinary Association in the United States, um, consider the method to be cruel, inhumane and an imprecise method of killing dairy, uh, dairy calves, particularly because calves have such a large skull, uh, meaning that an instantaneous kill is highly unlikely. So on all accounts, it's cruel. Despite this, it, it's estimated that around 34,600 calves are killed on farm each year. Um, and while official statistics are difficult to come by, we can assume that the vast majority are going to be killed by means of blunt force trauma or the crushing of rib cages, um, because it's the cheapest method available. Um, it's no surprise that we recommend that blunt force trauma is prohibited. Total mixed ration or totally intensive dairy systems are effectively the factory farms of dairy production, where dairy cows are taken off pasture, confined either wholly or partly in indoor systems, and fed an unnatural high-grain diet. As with other forms of factory farming, TMR systems allow for greater intensification. It allows for higher milk yields, um, or higher productive output, largely because of this unnatural diet, and also allows for a larger number of animals to be able to be crammed in a much smaller space. As you can ima imagine, there are a host of welfare concerns with TMR dairies. Um, too many for me to even bother to go in today, but I do urge you to read our report and some of our other work that we've done uh, post-introducing the report. Now, in 2010, it was estimated that about 2% of dairy cows, or sorry, 2% of dairy farms in Australia are TMR systems, which represents about 33,000 dairy cows. You may think that that's not a huge number, but if global trends in terms of production systems and also in terms of the demand for cheap milk is anything to go by, we can expect this to become the norm in Australia in, not, in the not too different, distant future. Now, neither POCTA, the Cattle Code, or the Standards and Guidelines require dairy cows to be given access to the outside or to, be, to access to pasture or, or the ability to exercise. Um, so, obviously, our key recommendation in the dairy report is to ensure that all dairy cows have access to the outdoors. And I, I think this is obviously something that Sharpa will be touching on in her presentation. But, oh, actually, just I wanted to go back and talk about one thing. So... Um, 
because we haven't really got any legislative protections in terms of cows and TMR systems, we're coming up with novel ways of being able to combat the, this sort of development application. Um, we have on, on board at Voiceless a, a very senior planning and environment lawyer um, who, when development applications do arise, we're able to have a look at the application and determine whether there are any, av any avenues, whether under planning or environment law, to be able to challenge these um, systems. Um, and I can't say that we've been too successful to date in terms of quantity, but there was one um, dairy farm, an intensive dairy farm, proposed in Kernot over in the Gippsland region in Victoria, which proposed a 1,000 head dairy farm um, with, a, with room for expansion. And we did put in an, a, a proposal and opposition on planning law grounds and also on animal welfare and environmental grounds. Um, the application in Kernot was rejected unanimously by the Bashire Council thanks in large part to a huge amount of community opposition. Um, but it was rejected on planning grounds, the very same planning grounds that we put in our application, which is good, but I think a lot of people made those same points. Um, unfortunately, the Bashai Council made the express point of saying that it wasn't on welfare grounds that they rejected the application. But we'll take our wins where we can. <laughs> so um, finally, the last of our unnecessary welfare concerns is in relation to the live export of dairy cows. Now, a report, um, so around 80,000 dairy heifers are exported live per year from Australia to such markets as China, Indonesia, Thailand, Pakistan, Egypt, Vietnam. As you're no doubt aware, a number of these exposés, there have been a number of exposés thanks to the investigations team at Animals Australia, which has exposed horrendous cruelty in each of these jurisdictions. Now, dairy cows are particularly vulnerable because they're classified as breeder animals under the relevant legislation. And as breeder animals, it means that they're carved out of SCAS, um, meaning that they've got absolutely no legal protections once they enter an overseas market or once they go, reach their destination. Now, you might say, well, SCAS doesn't really provide that many legislative protections anyway, which Shatha is going to be talking about, but at least it's something. It provides a baseline or uh, the bare minimum in terms of legal protections that are available. By carving out dairy cows from SCAS, you're effectively saying that these animals are without protection and they're not worth protection. Now, the reason why SCAS doesn't apply to them is because um, as productive animals, they may have a lifespan of anywhere between two and seven years. Um, because they might change hands a number of times, it's, not, it's deemed impractical to maintain a line of sight throughout the entire process. And so SCAS, which is all about maintaining a line of sight and ensuring uh, certain welfare standards are complied with along the supply chain, um, it is deemed impractical or impossible to apply to, to dairy cows. In our view, and it's a very simple one, if you're incapable of protecting these animals overseas, then they shouldn't be exported in the first place. And so our position is always, obviously, that live export, all live export needs to be banned, but in particular with, with dairy cows, because if you can't protect them overseas, then they shouldn't be there in the first place, or if you don't even feign to protect them overseas. For the remainder of the presentation, I wanted to focus on um, those welfare concerns that are inherent in high production commercial dairying, or in all dairying for that matter, um, and for which there appears to be few, if any, commercially viable alternatives. Now, the first is repeated impregnation. I don't need to tell you, I hope, um, that in order to produce milk, a cow must first be uh, to give birth to a calf. Um, well, I, I'm sure I don't. <laughs> um, well, a part of that process is obviously repeated impregnation. And a lot of that impregnation, as you can see here, is quite invasive and quite forceful. Now, a mother cow will generally be forced to give birth to a calf every 13 months in order to maintain um, peak milk performance. 
Now, pregnancy is obviously very hard work for dairy cows, and they are particularly susceptible to injury, illness, and disease during the period immediately prior, um, during, and after pregnancy or part tuition. The most common of these issues are lameness, lameness and mastitis. Now, lameness is a structural or functional condition which affects the cow's limbs, um, inhibiting her ability to walk, stand up, stand still, lie down, even move around. Um, the condition can be extremely painful. Dr John Webster describes in Limping Towards Eden the feeling of lameness, and he refers to it as, imagine if you got all of your fingers on your hands slammed shut in a door and then you were forced to walk on them. That is the pain that a cow feels when she is lame every day on all four of fours of her hooves. There are many causes of lameness, but a major cause is a reduction in the supportive capacity of the tissue in the hoof wall around the time of calving. That is, you know, it's more likely that you're going to develop the conditions that cause lameness around the time of calving. Um, cows are also more susceptible to the conditions that cause lameness due to overproduction, and I'll get to that point a little later. In 2008, lameness was estimated to affect around 28% of the dairy herd. Now, that would be a conservative estimate from industry self-reporting. It's a huge problem. Another big problem is um, mastitis, which is an inflammation of the mammary gland. It's caused by bacteria going um, invading the udder via the teat canal. Now, cows who ju have just given birth, or transition cows, are more likely to suffer from mastitis, largely due to um, a reduction in their immune system. Infections from environmental mastitis, bacteria, so bacteria that is in the natural environment, is also more likely to arise during the periods of parturition or calving, just because the, the udder will be more wet and she'll be more exposed to mud and manure around those, time, those periods. As with lameness, cows um, are more susceptible to mastitis and other illnesses um, due to overproduction, and in particular the stress overproduction plays on her immune system. Now, the RSPCA estimates that around 10 to 15% of the dairy herd are suffering from clinical mastitis uh, at the moment. Again, that is conservative. That would be a conservative estimate from industry self-reporting and, and, and perhaps some kind of reporting in the field, but it would be a conservative estimate. And when they talk about clinical mastitis, they're talking about um, the worst cases of mastitis. And as you can see there, the redness around the udder, that's, uh, you know, that, that shows an infected udder. Most dairy cows are removed from their mothers at about 12 hours after birth. There is now persuasive body of research which, which illustrates the harmful effect that separation, um, separating calves before they're naturally weaned has on both the mother and the calf. And yes, this is, where, this is where the dopamine levels really do drop. It is the hard part of the presentation. But I think it's really important to be able to talk about this. So for the mother cow, she's denied the ability to express comforting and natural maternal behaviours like licking and grooming her newborn calf, which is shown to be deeply satisfying and important for them both. Mother cows also display distress following separation, including increased restlessness, sniffing, vocalisation, activities that would normally... Um, serve to reunite the mother and her calf. Anecdotal evidence also exists of mother cows bellowing day and night in search of their young, often returning to the place in which they were last seen. There have even been instances of mothers escaping and travelling for miles to find their calves on other farms. 
Now, I think I've got time, um, but I wanted to also read out an excerpt. You know, it's every time I give this presentation, there's often someone with a science background who puts their hand up and says, yeah, but there's no, there's no scientific evidence or there's no consensus, um, which is true. There is no scientific consensus. A lot of the research is anecdotal. This is one anecdotal um, um, you know, evidence, which was provided by John Avazinius, who's the senior, senior scientific officer with the RSPCA in Great Britain. And he remembers one particular cow who was deeply affected by the separation process. And he stated, when the calf was first removed, she was in acute grief. She stood outside the pen where she had last seen her calf and bellowed for her offspring for hours. Even after, so she would only move when forced to do so. Even after six weeks, the mother would gaze at the pen where she last saw her calf and sometimes wait momentarily outside the pen. It was almost as if her spirit had been broken and all she could do was to make token gestures to see if her calf would still be there. That's from the Chief uh, Scientific Officer of the RSPCA in Great Britain. As we know too well, the fate of bobby calves um, are that if they're un uh, unneeded or unwanted for dairy production, then they're killed within a short period of time, usually within five days of birth. Every year, over 800,000 calves are killed in this way. While many bobby calves are killed on farm within hours of birth, the vast majority, about 700,000, are separated from their mothers, given a last feed, loaded onto trucks, um, sent on to slaughterhouses when they're, when they're eventually killed um, the following day. Often hungry, tired, the transportation process is obviously very difficult. They're often bruised, battered, and they're handled roughly because they haven't got those learned, those learned herd behaviours to be able to follow. This is really the... Um, the, uh, they call it the waste product of the dairy industry. Now, continual re-impregnation, mother-calf separation and the slaughter of unwanted bobby calves are an inherent part of dairying. They are an inherent part of dairying. There's about 1.65 million productive dairy cows in Australia and they, all, they each produce about 5,500 litres of milk per year. That's an incredible amount of milk and it's incredibly hard work. For example, produ producing a peak yield of 35 litres of milk per day has been equated to a, a man, a grown man, jogging six hours a day, seven days a week. It's hard work. Shortly after we released our report, an industry representative stated that it is perfectly normal for cows in the Gippsland region in Victoria to be milked 50 litres per day, gloating about it in the press. There is little wonder why many dairy cows um, will only live for between two and seven years, depending on how much they produce, whilst ordinarily in the wild they would live for 20 years. And it's the reason why Dr John Webster calls them the apotheosis of the overworked mother. Now with respect to these inherent welfare concerns, our initial recommendations are obviously to consumers. Australians consume an incredible quantity of dairy and we demand that it's as cheap as possible. The average Australian consumes 107 litres of milk, 14 kilograms of cheese and 4 kilograms of butter per year. If we want to improve the situation for dairy cows and their cars, we need to change consumer expectations through targeted consumer <coughs> awareness and education campaigns. Now, to facilitate ethical consumerism and also to encourage industry investment in higher welfare standards, we recommend the establishment of an independent industry assurance scheme as, as a baseline recommendation. Assurance schemes um, enable producers to develop their products in accordance with a set of established welfare standards and to market their product to consumers accordingly. 
Assurance schemes are an ideal way of encouraging producers to move away from this model of high production dairying and avoid some, obviously you can't avoid all, but some of the inherent welfare concerns that are involved in dairy production. For instance, our report contains a list of sample standards which could form the basis of an insurance scheme. Um, some of these standards would include a prohibition on the killing of bobby calves or that producers have implemented a plan to phase out the killing of bobby calves a prohibition on mother-calf separation before three months after birth, um, or have a system in place to reduce separation distress, such as through a nanny-cow system, um, or the implementation of a lameness and mastitis control strategy, where through monitoring and prevention, you're able to reduce the prevalence to about five in every 100 dairy cows. So an assurance scheme sounds like it would be fairly reasonable. It's a, a very welfareist approach and fairly, fairly sensible to the dairy industry, or so you would have thought. However, in my discussions with the dairy industry, both before and after we released our report, um, I constantly went to them and, and suggested the implementation of an assurance scheme and provided them a list of, of our standards that, that may or may not be included in such an assurance scheme. And repeatedly, they knocked it back on the basis that, well, if you single out a couple of producers as doing the right thing, you're basically <coughs> saying that everyone is doing the wrong thing. I understand the RSPCA also made attempts recently to introduce an assurance scheme when they were also knocked back. Don't get me wrong, assurance schemes are certainly not a panacea. When you're consuming dairy, there, is always, there are going to be inherent cruelties. They are repeated impregnation. It's going to be the death of bobby calves and also the overworked mother. They are an inherent part of commercial dairying. Um, only a complete remodelling of the way in which dairy is produced in this country, coupled with the realignment of consumer expectations, will we see any meaningful change for these beautiful animals. As, I see, as has been the case in other animal use industries, consumers provide, I think, the greatest hope for change. Consumers need to be aware that the consumption of dairy results in these inherent welfare concerns. Um, and indeed, when people tell me that the consumption of dairy is a personal choice, I agree, it is a personal choice, but it's not a victimless one. And I think it's important for consumers to make that connection. The consumer has enormous power and armed with information, is in a position to make ethical and compassionate choices. <coughs> Only with information are consumers capable of determining whether they're capable or whether they're comfortable with consuming milk after understanding these welfare concerns. We hope that in giving voice to the dairy cow and her calf through this report, that the informed consumer will be in a better position to be able to make that decision. And I also hope that after imparting some of this information, although it is incredibly difficult to watch, very difficult to listen to, I hope that after giving, imparting this information on you, that you can also make compassionate choices and be able to inform your friends and wider networks about how they too can make more compassionate choices. Thank you. You're tuned to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. And that last track was called Air, and it was by Mike Mills. Prior to that, you heard from Emmanuel Dufre of Voiceless presenting to the recent Animal Law Conference in Sydney on the issue of the Australian dairy industry. Let's hope that conference becomes a regular event on the Animal Advocates calendar.
The Melbourne street medics need your help. On Saturday the 18th of July, when we took to the streets against Reclaim Australia, Victoria Police pepper sprayed the crowd. We treated more than 100 people and we're asking you to donate to help restock our kits and train up new medics. We believe in empowering people to fight for a better world. Please help us to care for those who stand up for our rights. Please go to ozcrowd.com and search for Melbourne Street Medics or go to the Melbourne Street Medics Facebook page for more information on how to donate. The fourth National Elder Abuse Conference will be held in Melbourne on the 24th and 25th of February 2016. With our ageing population and greater focus on family violence, this conference is a timely and crucial part of the effort to stop elder abuse. Focusing on ageism, rights and innovation, the conference will benefit those working with older people. Early bird registrations close on the 11th of November. For more information, check out elderabuseconference.org.au or contact Seniors Rights Victoria on 1300 368 821. That's 1300 368 821. Seniors Rights Victoria is a 3CR supporter. On Monday the 7th, the new documentary about canned hunting in Africa, Blood Lions, is to be screened at Melbourne Uni and there's a link on the Freedom of Species Facebook page where you can buy tickets. Alternatively, you can look it up on its own dedicated Facebook page. The 2015 Animal Activists Forum will be held this year at Melbourne Town Hall on the weekend of October 10th and 11th. Prior registration is essential, so look them up online and get yourself a ticket. That's all I've got for you this week. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can contact us by email, info at freedomofspecies.org. Many thanks to Emmanuel Dufray, Amanda Richman, Kito Alexander, Mike Mills and Mount Mariah, whose song I'm going to leave you with now. It's called Honey, We Don't Need That Much. Stay tuned for In Psychedelia. Catch you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.